Business in the Okanagan Matters. This is Law Talk with lawyers Clay Williams and Tanvir Gill from FH&P Lawyers, LLP. They talk business and take your questions at podcast at fhplawyers.com. Now, here's Clay Williams. Welcome back to FH&P Lawyers Business Law Podcast. I'm Clay Williams, and as usual, I'm here with... Tanvir Gill. And Tanvir, we were lucky enough to have Elvin Law come back yeah. and continue to answer some questions. Yeah, we, Boy, had we got a good, it. Yeah, we had such a good feedback from our listeners, and everyone was super interested in our accounting um, podcast. I'm going to have to say it's because we, you know, we love our accountants. We love deferring to our accountants, so we had to have how, you back. How many times has that been said? That I'm uh, say every this podcast. is uh, what an interesting show. Yeah. I loved uh, hearing from the accountant. I mean. Alvin, you must have done a great job because that's uh, that's pretty remarkable. So, uh, well, I have to admit, I'm feeling pretty shell shocked right now. Yeah, I, 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 you, don't, you don't tend to hear that about an accountant, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. I'll tax. take it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, Alvin, so thank you for coming back. And uh, so, thanks for having uh, me. Elvin is a tax partner at uh, Chromakai, at the accounting firm of Chromakai, and he deals extensively with corporate reorganizations, transactions, estates, uh, state planning, and, and general corporate tax questions. So welcome back, and hey, let's get right into it. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, one of uh, that uh, I get asked a lot about is employee incentivization and how do I keep my employees and and I understand that's something that, that you can help with is, is that right yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's that's definitely a common topic especially with the demographic shift that you know there there seems to be a, a wave of pseudo retirements on on the horizon and with that owners wanting to, to cash out a bit or at least plan for it and often it's uh, key employees who sometimes step up to the plate first or the most practical choice because they already know the business. And so because of that, yeah, we've we've assisted with that sort of uh, long-term incentives, whether it's through staged buy-ins, um, employee stock options, you know, things of that nature for sure. Yeah, and so when I see those type of things, I, I'm often seeing it in terms of some instructions from an accounting firm as to putting the structure into place. So I, I take it you're having those those planning sessions, those strategy sessions, and then uh, and then we'll get the instructions to actually document it for, from the legal perspective. It's one of those planning and, and transaction events, um, I'll call it, that uh, obviously has a, a same or similar end goal at the end of the day, but the mechanics can be quite different. And so, for example, in, in one scenario, you may have a, a current business owner who wants to have certain key employees participate as, as owners, but wants to make sure they have uh, skin in the game, let's say, right? In other situations, the current owner may be more willing to have them come in at a lower cost so they can financially and, and take the risk that they'll act as an owner as well. And then, of course, the other one that we deal with a lot is when it's uh, the second generation coming in, which depending on the family relationship is either a looser business agreement or, or a, a much more stringent one. So, And, and you know, I want to ask yeah. you some questions about the estate planning down, down the road. But just while it occurs to me, you know, do you guys do a lot of the uh, tech company stock option stuff? Is that something in your wheelhouse? It's definitely become more prevalent over the last number of years, in part just how the Kelowna market has evolved. The, the, the tech industry 
has uh, grown exponentially here. And, and so by definition, we do see more of it. That being said, often it's a lot of startups kind of implementing these plans. And so for costing measures, I'll say, they'll, they'll often uh, work directly with their lawyers. But um, in other cases, we, we do assist with the planning or at least letting them know the tax consequences of plans they've already walked into. Yeah, I, I find the costing issues uh, is a big one with startups, that's for sure. So another question that I think would be important for us to cover in this podcast is what would you have to say about financial statements, whether they're requested by bankers, different financial institutions for a company, or even when it comes to financial statements requested for a company who's trying to sell? Great question. Part of it ties into um, what we just mentioned about costs sometimes being a factor with mm-hmm. with employee stock options, for example. There's there's really three levels of financial statement generally. There's what we call um, a notice to reader or a compilation, which is um, the the least stringent of the three, I'll call it. And then in the middle, we have what we call a review engagement, which is uh, subject to certain accounting standards. And then lastly, we have an audit, which is uh, a souped up version of that, I'll, I'll call it. You know, this is pretty general. All, all my accounting colleagues are probably cringing right now. But um, <laughs> so, souped up does sound like an accounting <laughs> term to me. Yeah, it's it's technically listed somewhere in some manual, I believe. But, financials uh, on rims. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, those are the three levels of financial statement. And they tend to vary quite a bit in cost, in part because of the amount of diligence and assurance and work that goes into each. But as a result, that's why uh, a bank, for example, may require at least a review engagement standard because, you know, obviously as the potentially the largest creditor of a business, they want to make sure they can bank on the numbers that are shown to them. Yeah. So that's your middle standard. Yeah. Is that the most common standard you're dealing with or does it depend on the company? I think it depends on um, the situation. and, And I think if you ask three accounting firms, they'll probably give you three different answers because yeah. uh, it's really dependent on the nature of their client base and, and, and that sort of thing. But I would say, you know, reviews are, are, are relatively common when you have substantial bank debt or you're an entity that's um, looking to sell, I'll say in the future, but not too far into the future. Because uh, another yeah, and, reason- And I can provide yeah. some comments on that. For so sure. I would say that uh, most of the businesses we deal with in, you know, in the Okanagan, can find their financial statements at notice the reader level. And when we deal with banks um, and there we're negotiating commercial security and commercial loans, we're going to push back on that review engagement requirement if we can, because of course it, it's, it comes at a substantial cost uh, from a from professional fee standard. As a lender, that's probably the most common reason why parties tend to, let's say, do a review engagement versus a notice to reader. Because yeah, you're right, and, and there, there is a cost spread, right? There really is. Yeah. And the time we'll see review engagements will be uh, when a company is selling. And they're doing that to provide some level of comfort to a purchaser so they can offer review engagements. And that, that's usually what I see see review engagements done. So. I'd uh, echo that sentiment for sure. And, and in some instances, actually, we will see that people will, will actually start doing audits in preparation for a sale. So Okay. So, hey, another question we've got for you is uh, with respect to borrowing money. And so, 
As lawyers, we will uh, act for banks in documenting the security they want in order to secure the loans they make, and we'll act for our clients, uh, the business owners, in terms of basically satisfying the banks and negotiating with the banks on uh, the security that the banks want. I'm just wondering, do the accountants have a role in terms of of bank financing and commercial security? Definitely. Again, it really depends on the scenario, but kind of at a high level, I say there's two large areas where um, accountants are often involved. The first would be on the compliance side with the financial statements and corporate tax return. Um, often the lender will have certain covenants that need to be maintained and at the same time they want timely financial reporting. So let's say within 90 days after the fiscal year and and whatnot. So that's where the accountant really comes into play to work with their client to make sure the timelines can be met and that uh, the ratios are, are, are maintained, which is um, a great example of why you want to be in contact with your accountant and vice versa as the advisor, be in contact with your client throughout throughout the year. Yeah, I do see those ratios, particularly in the uh, the construction field. And uh, so is that something that accountants are going to be able to assist with, I take it? Absolutely. So Alvin, another situation that we see quite often is when a business that's been running for so long and is quite well known is being handed down to the next generation. So for example, I have a client who's been running a orchard for years and years, and now they're kids have kind of gotten to that stage where they're potentially married. Um, Some of them are in university and now they're thinking, okay, we need to restructure and we need to pass this down. What comments do you have, I guess, on the estate planning or that intergenerational focus of tax planning? I think with estate planning, I guess, you know, not necessarily to to beat a dead horse, but it kind of reiterates the the benefits of being involved in your client's situation and and continually meeting and learning about what their goals and objectives are, because that's what really estate planning is. Mm -hmm. It's viewing the long-term goals of a client and helping them achieve that in a tax-efficient manner. I think so many clients think that it's just easy enough to just pass it down. Right. You know, it's right. like, oh, we're just going to put this in their name. It's not that simple. And well, there's well, tax implications. But, but I think they want some money out of it, too, usually. Most people can't just afford to give a business to their kids. They they want to... You would be shocked well, at the people geez, I wish that I, I had have. parents like that. But, <laughs> we have people that are like, no, we're just going to put their name on everything because we're 60 now. We're 55 now. We're going to put... All our kids need to be shareholders. We're going to transfer this farm into their name, and that's our tax planning. What do you think? And then we're trying to have those conversations about estate freezes or more, you know, high level tax planning to show them the benefit of doing that versus just transferring everything. And I think what really comes to the forefront is that upfront planning and making sure the client has the options in front of them before they make a choice or more importantly, before they're forced to make a choice. And that's one of the big things with estate planning. Often we find clients or or potential clients maybe come to the plate a bit too late, and that often can just take options off the table. Whereas, you know, if that discussion was had a bit earlier with the respective advisors, more options remain on the table and can potentially be implemented more more efficiently over time. Geez, that's a really good point. And and it it just begs the question about timelines, though. So if a person is considering uh, selling their business, uh, one of the things that we'll talk to them about is, is how to get their business ready for sale or... Uh, if a person is looking to transfer their business 
through the generations. Uh, we'll talk to them about how to do that. Do you have any advice on, on, on timelines? Like, when do you think uh, the person should, should start those talks, you know? Again, it's kind of fact specific, but if I were to pick one point in time, especially when it comes to intergenerational transfers, you'd probably want to look at it, uh, at least start looking at it when, when mom and dad, I'll say, are probably in their early 50s, and there's a high likelihood of having uh, a business transfer. And that's in part because what you try to achieve generally is to transfer the value of the business, or at least the future value of the business, both on a tax-deferred basis, but as soon as possible, so that as the first generation, you're not saddled with uh, a bigger tax liability if, let's say, you were to pass away unexpectedly, or if you just have too much value in your hands and you have to realize that tax in your lifetime. Several times we've been in the middle of a transaction and we hear from the other side that they have to put it on pause because they're going to uh, do, they've decided at the last minute to do some tax planning. And, uh, oh, it's so annoying that, uh, you know, <laughs> we have to redraft documents at the last minute and at midnight in order because somebody's decided to interject a, an extra company into the mix or something. So Maybe I better just, to do it that way than to say, we bought this company. Now we need to work backwards to redraft how we bought this company. No, I just can't reiterate enough the importance of speaking with your advisors sometime in advance. Because if we're working at midnight, you're paying for it. So... <laughs> And that's a really good point about uh, spontaneous planning, so to speak, or ad hoc planning. That can sometimes be an issue. And one example of that would be with the sale of shares of one's company. Often one of the biggest tax benefits is the lifetime capital gains exemption, which can shield the capital gains tax. Well, there's a host of criteria that need to be met for shares to be qualifying. And one of those is uh, a certain hold period of qualifying shares of at least two years. And so uh, if you're not thinking ahead or planning ahead or having those conversations, you can have a situation where you have an unsolicited offer that you can't, uh, I'll say, refuse. But because the planning wasn't done ahead of time, you may not qualify. And of course, trying to defer the sale for two years may not be tenable, right? So absolutely. Timing and, and, and foresight are, are definitely key. Two years. Take that away from that would have been our listeners. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a long period of time. Yeah. So. so Alvin, what about those clients that aren't sure whether the best thing for them to do is an asset purchase or a share purchase? And I, I feel like we can do an entire podcast on just this topic, but let's say um, I actually had a client who was doing a purchase, the seller of a functioning farm and land, uh, land and company, sorry, was um, a numbered company. And so they were struggling with, do we do a share purchase or do we do an asset purchase? And we were more on board with doing the sh assets um, and the accountant sort of deferred. They said they didn't love the company that was in place and they were okay with doing assets. Um, but the client obviously didn't get their property, uh, property transfer tax um, cut there because of that structure. So do you have comments to make on that? Can I, can I interject there? Yeah. Because one of the frustrations that we as lawyers have is that oftentimes people will make a deal before they mm -hmm. come to us. And so we are handicapped uh, by doing an, an asset purchase or doing a share purchase uh, without having the opportunity to take a look at that. So just coming back to the planning portion, don't sign on the dotted line, please, until you've had 
the opportunity to have those yeah. discussions with us. But sorry, uh, those that asset and share choice uh, involves a whole bunch of different things to think about. What are some of them, Alvin? I think part of the uh, distinction between the two is often the conflicting interests of the buyer and the seller. So very generally speaking, um, a seller would normally want to uh, sell shares, yeah. especially if they're qualifying shares, because then he or she could claim their lifetime capital gains exemption to the extent it's available. Whereas a purchaser may be more inclined to purchase the underlying assets directly, because often there are tax depreciation, um, which is a form of deduction, that's more readily available in, this, in those situations. When you have a large portion of the share value attributable to something like land, that's a non-depreciable asset, sometimes that gap can close because of the nature of certain tax rules that help certain tax attributes. But otherwise, that's that's a common uh, put and take between a buyer and a seller. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's interesting that uh, example you provided with farmland because the other um, item that comes into the mix is whether the underlying land or the shares thereof would be considered qualified farm property because um, that is uh, allotted a separate capital gains exemption beyond the the regular one that we kind of talked about just now. So as you mentioned, this is a whole podcast on its own. So mm-hmm. it's it's not a black and white answer, but it's it's one that's very often debated, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I just wanted to make the point that... Uh, you know, don't make a deal before you come and talk to us about it. Yeah, I think um, people don't even realize the two structures yeah. or the two ways to purchase through shares or through assets. They see what's up for sale, for example, whether it's a winery that's up for sale and they just think, oh, this is great. We're going to do the asset purchase, but there could be another way to do it that's more beneficial and that conversation's not happening at the right time. Right. Yeah, it's right. presented for sale in a certain way and, and the inquiry doesn't even happen. No, it so. doesn't, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alvin. And uh, with all of your tax advice and uh, certainly the easiest way to make money is not to pay the tax man. So uh, (laughs) thank you for all your tips. And I guess the takeaway is, uh, hey, let's uh, give us some time before you sell, you buy, you you transfer. Have the right conversations with the right people at the right time. That tax body is so important. So thank you again. FHMP lawyers are rooted in community and ready to help. Send your business law questions to podcast at fhplawyers.com.